There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello. Welcome to a new episode of Say Why to Drugs. Sorry for the radio silence for so long. A combination of factors meant that this podcast had to go on the back burner for a little bit. But I'm back with a few episodes over the next few weeks to make up for it. Coming up, we'll have a bit of a first for Say Why to Drugs, a chat about drug policy reform with an organisation called Transform, who have known for a long time about what the evidence looks like in terms of drug policy, as they've just published a new report about what regulation of stimulants would look like. Also, um, I'm going to be putting out a chat recorded live in front of an audience just before lockdown with the awesome Alex Aldridge, recorded at Vault Festival in association with the fantastic charity Child.org. I thought I'd lost the recording for this one, but I've managed to salvage it from the backup to be able to bring it to you. Better late than never, I hope. The topic for that one is about the relationship between drugs and sex. But in this episode, I spoke to two good friends and colleagues about alcohol use in pregnancy. What do we know about the evidence? Why has it been quite controversial recently? And as it's Stoptober at the moment, this seemed like a good time to put it out. So enjoy as we say why to alcohol use in pregnancy. Hello everyone, welcome to a special edition of Say Why to Drugs. And this is a special edition because uh, I haven't done one for a while, sorry. I've been busy and the world's kind of ending, I don't know if you've noticed. But but I'm very excited to be joined by two friends and colleagues today to talk about something that's quite close to my heart at the moment, my heartburn at the moment. and that is um, alcohol use during pregnancy, because I am currently pregnant. I'm actually very near to my due date, which is terrifying and exciting and wonderful. Um, but we've been talking, um, myself and my two guests, for a while now about recording an episode around alcohol and pregnancy, because it's something that even before becoming pregnant, I've gone through phases of not drinking. And one thing I've noticed is that every time I do have a phase of not drinking, one of the first questions I get asked is, are you pregnant? And we all know that too much alcohol in pregnancy is bad for us. But actually, there's an awful lot that we don't know about alcohol in pregnancy. And there's an awful lot of sort of misinformation and miscommunication and sort of confused messaging about it. So 
what better excuse uh, than me being up the duff to have a conversation about alcohol use in pregnancy. And as I said, I'm joined by two very good friends of mine who are also experts in the field. So can I get you guys to introduce yourselves, please? Sure. Hi, Susie, Dr. Gage. Known you since before you were Dr. Gage, actually. Um, congratulations on your pregnancy. It's fantastic news, really exciting. So my name is uh, Dr. Luisa Zuccolo. I'm an epidemiologist at the University of Bristol. And I mostly study the effects of alcohol in pregnancy, both on pregnancy outcomes, but also on later health of the babies. Hi, Susie. Thanks for inviting us into this podcast. I'm Dr. Kate Fleming. I'm also an epidemiologist. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever had the occasion to speak just three epidemiologists all together like this, which is going to be great. Um, and I mostly study fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And this is a range of conditions that are caused by alcohol exposure in pregnancy. Um, and so absolutely delighted to be talking about this, an issue that definitely has lots and lots of things that we don't know, uh, but also that we can hopefully provide more clarification that tend, than usually gets out there. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this because, yeah, as I said, it's something that's been sort of close to my heart for a long time. In the alcohol episode of Say Why to Drugs, I use it as a sort of shorthand of how pervasive alcohol culture is in the UK. The fact that if ever I'm not drinking, people assume that if you're a woman of reproductive age and you're not drinking, it's because you're either pregnant or you're trying to get pregnant. Whereas, obviously, we don't have to drink all the time. And just because we go to pubs doesn't mean we have to drink. I mean, it'd be lovely to go to a pub right now. But this this sort of pervasive nature of alcohol within society, I think, is quite tied into alcohol use during pregnancy. Definitely. I mean, we, we live in a culture where every event is celebrated with alcohol. So you're pregnant, no doubt when your baby is born, people will say to you, shall we go and wet the baby's head? If we lose somebody right at the other end of the life spectrum, we will go and we will celebrate somebody's life with a drink. And every event in between birth and death. In this culture, generally speaking, the pervasive way of celebrating is to use alcohol. So it's everywhere and it's accepted and that's okay. But there are some there are some times where mm, we probably should be avoiding alcohol. I love what you just said. Alcohol is everywhere. It was actually the title of a really influential report written by the Alcohol um, Health Commission last week about the pervasiveness of alcohol and the messaging, uh, especially from commercial interests on alcohol the producers. And uh, full disclosure here, I'm Italian, 100% Italian, naturalized as British citizen. So I have seen and lived in two different cultures that have very different attitudes towards alcohol drinking. I wouldn't say the Italians necessarily drink less than the British, but they drink in a different way. And they certainly do not expect drinking to be part of fun or to be essential to having fun. So letting your hair down doesn't mean that you have to drink, especially if there's no food around, you can't possibly be having fun. But it's it's really interesting what you were saying, Kate, about uh, the the pervasiveness and also the the constant presence of it so it's not just everywhere but it's all the time and the fact that people think oh my goodness you're pregnant means you can't possibly drink for nine months or if you choose not to you're not drinking for nine months it's such a sacrifice it's it's just really something that people feel such a big deal um to abstain from alcohol so i i thought one of the really 
uh, impactful campaigns um, around the drinking in pregnancy was a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, when Prince Harry announced publicly that he was going to stop drinking for the duration of uh, Meghan Markle's pregnancy in support of her decision to stop drinking. Yeah, that was really interesting for for those of us who who study alcohol in pregnancy and the messaging, because there were a lot of occasions where there were subtle ways in which he showed that support. So they were out on a tour and he was uh, giving a speech or a toast and he toasted with water. And very often that's just not done. Oftentimes as well, we'll find that people will hide the fact that they're not drinking by substituting it with something that looks like an alcoholic drink. Why not just not drink? But this this very fact that women get questioned in this way can, of course, lead to disclosure that might be unwanted. I've, I've had a lot of pregnancy losses. And so if you are constantly being asked, are you pregnant or are you trying to get pregnant? If you answer honestly, and then you might lose a pregnancy, that's quite upsetting. You've disclosed that fact of pregnancy or trying for pregnancy before you might have wanted to. So we should be able to normalize not drinking whenever we feel like it for whatever reason including if we are trying or we are pregnant and it should be no different yeah it would certainly put less pressure on women i think and just as there is now a bit of a normalization around dry january um people have started talking about uh, this campaign called the dry mesta and so people talk about dry january as in a legit reason um, or a legit time of year where people might choose not to drink and the nine months or more realistically seven or eight months where you know that you're pregnant and you're trying not to drink can also be called the dry mester just to signify it's a finite amount of time it's achievable especially if you think about the long term what are nine months after all compared to a lifetime of potential brain injury that kind of brings us on to the science. So why shouldn't women drink during pregnancy? What are the risks of drinking during pregnancy? Maybe, Kate, if you want to talk about um, fetal alcohol syndrome, that's not what it's called, is it? What is it called? Well, no, so that there's fetal alcohol syndrome and then there's fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And so this spectrum disorders, I think most people might be familiar, more familiar with um, autism now being labelled autism spectrum disorders. So we acknowledge that there are a range of different conditions that present in similar ways. Some are more severe, some are less. At the very severe end of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders or FASD as we shorten it to, we have fetal alcohol syndrome. And this is um, what was recognised earliest uh, in terms of the adverse effects of alcohol exposure in utero. And it combines typical facial characteristics. It affects the growth of the fetus. And therefore, when the baby is born, it is small or smaller than it could or should be. There are these facial differences um, and there are a lot of effects to do with the way in which these children, as they grow, develop the neurodevelopmental conditions that are associated with it or are part of it. And that distinction is quite difficult sometimes to make. But what we see in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, we tend not to see these physical characteristics so obviously. And it's more the neurodevelopmental side of things. But what we do know is that FASD is associated with long term consequences in and of itself. A child 
or a person with FASD as they grow will often have very, very good communication skills and they will be able to converse with you very, very well. But there may be a problem in them understanding what they are actually doing in internalizing some of the things that they're saying. And regrettably, an awful lot of children who grow up with FASD end up being exploited because they are pro-social. They want to make friends, but they can't totally understand the consequences of their actions. And so that can lead to exploitation in gangs. It can lead to sexual exploitation. And I'm not saying that that's all children who are affected by FASD, far from it. But these are some of the consequences that we can see. But more specifically, FASD in general has this neurodevelopmental deficit in children. This can impact on children's learning and as they grow up into adulthood, their ability to hold down particular types of jobs or to understand the world around them often needing a lot of structure and needing more support to understand and process information as they grow. And Kate, what's your experience of uh, behavioural problems as the children are, say, in school age or preschoolers? Certainly what we see is a lot of children with FASD exhibit traits that are commonly labelled as other more commonly accepted neurodevelopmental disorders. Whether these are co-located or whether they are part of the FASD itself, we see children being labelled with ADHD, Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Disorder. We see children being labelled with uh, autism spectrum disorders, uh, social communication disorders, sensory processing disorders. A lot of things that we more commonly accept and are able to diagnose rather than being able to diagnose FASD itself. Now, that's not to say that those diagnoses are wrong per se, but not knowing that something might be FASD means that we might tailor the interventions in a way that might not be optimal for that child. So something that often people ask me, because I actually study uh, low levels of alcohol mostly, and I study what happens to Uh, children in the population where the mums were drinking any amount, which could range from one drink during pregnancy, one drink per week, or on special occasions, or really being heavy drinkers. And uh, many people seem to have the idea that if you drink only a little bit, that's okay. And their mums likely drank a little bit during their pregnancy, and they are fine. A bit like everybody knows a 99-year-old who's who's a heavy smoker, and so surely can't kill you. That's usually the way that I reply to them. So it means it's really, really hard to completely pinpoint what the effects are for a particular individual of themselves, so the the woman drinking during her pregnancy, or for an individual who was exposed to alcohol in pregnancy, what the effects are for them and what they would be like, say, in terms of their cognition or their behavior, had their mum not drunk during their preg- during their gestation. So what we as epidemiologists do is we study populations more than studying individuals. And so by looking at just like many other, um, the effects of many other drugs that you, Susie, have covered in your podcast. So instead of looking at one particular individual and being able to say, oh, surely you'll be five points, five IQ points smarter had your mum not had that pint that one time, um, we can say that at the population level, we might or might not see some effects. But obviously, when you go into really small amounts of drinking, it's really hard to be completely sure that the effects that you see are due to the alcohol 
and that the effects you see are real. However, what we can say, at least for drinking at the population level and drinking small amounts, is that there seems to be such a variability in how people are susceptible and affected by alcohol. That means there's always going to be a risk and we are not able to tell which mums and which babies are going to shoulder the burden of that risk. So the way that I saw it when I was pregnant was, well, it's a bit like playing Russian roulette. Let's say that there's one risk in 10, that if I drink, my child is going to be affected and it's going to be affected in a way that is actually visible or will cause them problems later on. To me, that was just a risk not worth taking, just because we cannot make that prediction of who is going to be mostly affected. It's a really good point, Louisa. And I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult to make is that we have had these mixed messages about alcohol and other conditions. So everybody will have the, oh yes, but if you drink, it protects you from heart disease or it will decrease your risk of whatever else event. We're largely debunking all of those associations as were said, and this idea that uh, no alcohol is more risky than a little bit of alcohol. And that's because we've improved the science and that's improved the way that we're able to understand the potential risks. So pretty much with alcohol, it's a linear relationship. The more you drink, the more likely you are to have harm because of the alcohol. There's no reason to suspect that alcohol exposure in pregnancy would be any different to that. And so the best message that we can put out is to drink as little as possible and ideally nothing. It's not to remove the choice from women to do that, but it's to give the best information that we can. One of the things you said, Louisa, was that you're studying women who are drinking very low amounts and whether that causes harm or not. Well, it must be very difficult because we don't know. We don't actually have a great way of capturing that information. And so we can't give the best information that we would like to give to women to be able to allow them to make their own informed choices. Yeah, you'd be surprised how few studies actually looked at women drinking very small amounts compared to women drinking nothing. And whether that's because it was not a question of interest some time ago, or whether it's because most women that report drinking drink a bit more, or whether it's because it didn't really used to be a worry that people had and people used to only concentrate their efforts into drinking much more, so moderate or heavy drinking. And so we actually did a systematic review, which meant we tried to get together all of the different evidence and all the scientific studies on drinking lightly in pregnancy, and we, we, we could barely find any studies. Uh, now, the few, the, the few that we did were mainly on uh, outcomes such as birth weight and uh, being born early. Uh, so premature babies, and we did find that even drinking really small amount seemed to have a negative effect on um, birth weight, so seemed to be linked to smaller babies being born and also babies being born earlier than expected. Having said that, what was the, the actual dose that we were looking at? Well, maybe some of you would have heard that in 2016, so very recently, the, the advice in the UK changed uh, about drinking in pregnancy. And that's actually caused a lot of confusion because not all midwives or practitioners go via the new advice. So the old advice used to be that if you really must drink up to four units a week is an acceptable, was seemed to be an acceptable amount. So four units a week means 
basically two pints of, of lager, two pints of lager, or one and a half pints of a stronger beer. So with a large glass of wine, you're already at two units of at four units a week. So a large glass of wine a week will be already over the amount. So we're, we're talking about really, really small amounts of alcohol. And so we wanted to compare the old guidelines, suggesting that that was an okay amount to have, to the new guidelines, guidance, which says that abstaining is the only safe choice. And yeah, it was incredibly hard to conduct the study and to look broadly at all of the possible consequences in mums and babies. So one thing I was wondering, listening to what the risks are and sort of what we are suggesting that the risks go up however much you drink, whether it's from very little to a lot, it's kind of a linear relationship. But what's kind of what's the scale of the risk? How does this compare to other things? Because women are told so many things that they can't do during pregnancy and some of these things we just sort of accept and for some reason alcohol seems to be a bit more of a of a sticking block like I know that I'm not supposed to eat certain soft cheeses or I'm not supposed to eat certain like raw fish or it's too much tinned tuna or you know there's a million things that I'm not supposed to eat right now and frankly um it's getting quite dull my diet <laughs> maybe that's just pregnancy cravings what's kind of the level of risk here do we know much about that this I think is a really interesting one because I bet if you asked people what do you have to avoid when you're pregnant they'd be able to tell you about soft cheeses previously they would have been able to tell you about raw eggs and that's not true anymore you can eat raw eggs that have got a lion seal now because apparently we've got rid of the risk of salmonella or whatever it was that was in eggs so people would be able to possibly give you the list of what they should avoid but not why they should avoid it and so some of these risks are because of poten potential exposure to bacteria um, that have a potential to cause miscarriage, which is obviously a very serious and a very devastating outcome. But we don't give that information. We just kind of say, please don't eat these things. And we don't say why. So high levels of mercury in fish is the reason that we ask to avoid fish, but we don't say why. And they are accepted. You're absolutely right. And so I find it quite a struggle. I'm not going to lie that we have things that are totally available. There's no age limits on the purchase of sushi, as far as I'm aware. There's no age limits on the purchase of pate or brie or whatever else it might be. I think we're supposed to, we're supposed to avoid uh, cured meats recently. And yet something that we know has harms and we already have restrictions on use and that we have nicotine, we're advised not to smoke during pregnancy. And alcohol, we're advised not to drink during pregnancy. They, they're interpreted in very, very different ways. So this idea that we're removing women's choice by advising not to drink alcohol, we advise not to eat these other things, and yet there isn't the same furore about it. And I think this goes back to what we were speaking about right at the beginning, that alcohol is viewed as this exceptionally important part of self-determination, of expression of self. And I, I don't think we need it to be. I, I think we can open that conversation about why we ask people to, for a short period of time, remove their exposure to particular things 
in a grown-up way. And as we said, it's only for nine months. Tops. Although this brings up another interesting point, I think, which is that a lot of pregnancies aren't planned. And a lot of people, e- even pregnancies that are planned, there's, there's this sort of Schrodinger's pregnancy type. I mean, I, I'm speaking as someone who spent quite a long time trying, trying and failing to get pregnant, that you live half your month in a Schrodinger's pregnancy where you could be pregnant, but you're probably not because you weren't pregnant the last month or the last month or the last month. So do you just, and it's really depressing. <laughs> and so sometimes it feels like, God, I really would like a beer actually, because I bet I'm not even pregnant and I'm I'm also sacrificing having a, having a nice beer. After I had a miscarriage, we'd been trying for a while before the miscarriage. And after I had it, I just decided to stop drinking because it was one less thing to think about and sort of beat myself up about and having like two weeks of not drinking and then two weeks of drinking really heavily because I was miserable that I wasn't pregnant kind of thing. <laughs> There's sort of a combination of things happening here. There's that kind of thing where if you are trying it can be quite frustrating and you're sort of having this sort of two weeks on two weeks off kind of thing but there's also lots and lots of people who suddenly discover they're pregnant and if they've been out like a week before and gone and had a big night out you know then there can be this huge feeling of sort of guilt and worry and shame and knowing that alcohol's bad but sort of thinking oh god well have I have I just done permanent damage by one night out kind of thing. So one one tiny saving grace of this is that within the first two weeks of, uh, of, of the actual pregnancy, because there is, a, there is no placenta yet, so before presentation, and so there is no direct sharing of your blood with the fetus, um, it's potentially less likely that you're causing um, severe harm in the very first two weeks before you start sharing blood with the fetus. After that, you might you already you still don't know that you're pregnant and you might be drinking and it might be more consequential. However, if the risk is really, really yeah, if the risk is really high, um, you might want to talk to your health professional and you might want to talk to your midwife. And anytime that you're worried about something, just like you be, you might be worried about having been, you know, out and eating some raw fish or something, that you would talk to your to your midwife about it. So some of the risks that you were, sorry, just to go back quickly to what you were saying earlier, some of the risks that you were talking about, uh, uh, cured meats as opposed to raw fish, et cetera, et cetera. Many, many women that I talked to uh, remind me that they would be really interested in having sort of a league table of risks and also like in absolute terms. So how likely are these risks and, uh, and what are the consequences of each risk? And I think it'd be an amazing project to actually for somebody to sit down and work out the probabilities of something going wrong because of eating or consuming this food um, and also what the long-term impacts are. So for some of them, the probability is very low, but the impact is catastrophic. So that's, for example, the case for raw cured meats. And in Italy, where I'm from, pregnant women just abstain from eating parma ham because there's a risk of uh, toxoplasmosis, which is a really, really severe infection that would cause um, all sorts of really severe brain damage and even non-viable pregnancies. So for the sake of the nine months, people avoid eating parma ham, and that's absolutely fine. Although some of these other risks might be that there is a quite a, um, small, uh, quite a large probability of a small risk. 
So it's the opposite, it's the other way around. So quite prevalent exposures. We know it's out there. We know it's almost certain that you are going to be affected by the risk, but the risk is actually not as devastating as toxoplasmosis. So it, it, it's a balance of two factors, really, for each one of the food items or the prohibited list. Um, and I think that women would really appreciate a little bit more ownership on understanding what the risks are. Um, and a bit more information about it. So often people talk about uh, the two -tier, a two-tier system of understanding what the risks are. And so the, being the first tier, um, being the one, the bottom line guidance, avoid this, avoid that, limit your tuna consumption to two portions a week, et cetera, et cetera. And the second tier being the actual reason why you're, you're telling them and the strength of evidence. How, how sure are we that those are the risks we're talking about? At the, at the end of the day, I, th I think Louisa and I have not actually spoken with each other about this, but through various communications, Never. have actually spoken many, many times about different things, um, is that it's all about choice. It's all about wanting to actually give women the best information. And what Louisa and, uh, said about making sure that you speak to your midwife. Midwives are absolutely women's advocates during pregnancy. Um, there's been some not, I, I, I think it's quite disappointing narrative in the press recently about policing women by virtue of finding out about whether they've consumed alcohol during pregnancy. It's, it's nothing to do with that. It's about knowing how to give the best support to that woman in front of you. I work with a lot of midwives and every single midwife is wanting the best for that pregnancy for that woman at that time. And some of that is going to be about finding out what might have happened that might mean there needs to be extra care, extra caution, extra follow up in the benefit of or to the benefit of the woman and that child. It's not about policing for trying to remove a child that some people seem to think is 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 the reason for you know a low level alcohol consumption is not going to be something that is going to end up having a child removed from its mother it's actually about saying well right now if we don't know for sure if there is a threshold and we don't think there is we think it's this linear relationship then let us be able to follow up to be able to make sure that you're getting any support that might be needed if you are unfortunately one of those people who has got a child that's been affected and needs additional support. And we can't do that unless we know, uh, or it is more difficult to do that unless we know. And people like Louisa and myself also can't do the research to give women the better information to allow them to make the informed choices that it is their right to make. So why do you think that reporting got such pushback? Because I saw a lot of, I, I mean, I kind of know the answer to why the reporting got a lot of pushback, because the reporting was very much like, if you have one drink during pregnancy, it's going to be on your child's record for life kind of thing. And that does sound pretty draconian and pretty sort of unnecessary. Like One drink during pregnancy, a couple of years ago, one drink during pregnancy was kind of allowed or much more than one drink during pregnancy we said one drink a week during pregnancy kind of thing was like allowed in the guidelines and now suddenly it's sort of going to be a black mark on on your report card kind of thing was how it was portrayed if you could have done the messaging better I mean I guess Kate you've kind of just 
done the messaging better. What are the sort of, what are the benefits of collecting that information and, and how could we be better at sort of either persuading women that we need it or having a discussion about whether and why we need it? And and how does it relate to other things? Like do we collect similar information about smoking and is that on um the child's uh, medical records in the in the same kind of way. Thanks, Susie, for bringing this up because it really enraged me a couple of weeks ago when all of the media reporting um, bubbled up. I could not believe my ears. So first of all, the messaging didn't come from NICE, the chief medical officer, the Department of Health, the Royal College of Midwives, or any such um, official organs. Um, what was happening? So the source of the the, the media story was that it was an open consultation. It was a period of open consultation during which the National Institute for Care Excellence, NICE, was proposing the introduction of a new recording of alcohol during pregnancy. And because they wouldn't just do it on their own without asking women, charities, um, organizations, etc. They opened up a consultation period to try and refine their proposal in the way they were. And now the messaging didn't come from them at all, but it came from one such organization supposedly defending women's rights that seemed to voice concerns about the current state or the current draft of these proposals. Now, to put things into context, absolutely, we do already uh, collect information about smoking in pregnancy, both in primary care settings. So when you, as a pregnant woman, speak to your GP, they will ask about smoking in pregnancy and record the information. And at your booking appointment, which is the first antenatal visit with your community midwife. Um, and, this is, and this does go on to um, the child record. Uh, so we know that smoking has a very clear detrimental effect, so harmful effect on children's growth and development in, in a number of ways. We've known about it for longer than we've known about alcohol effects. And for that reason, uh, the smoking has come first. But just as smoking is collected and recorded and uh, women are offered help and support for quitting smoking if they choose to, or reduce the amount of smoke if they choose to, in the same way and within the same framework, there's now the proposal to discuss alcohol, to discuss whether it is a problem to the woman, whether she would like support with stopping smoking, with stopping drinking. And I would hope that the conversation can move from one of policing and child's safety at the expense of women's rights to one which is more nuanced and about how best to listen to and support women with their pregnancy, with their concerns of maybe having drunk in the, in the early stages, with their concern about using drinking as a crutch in their current state, and with the, their concerns going forward. And so that would be an, an, an opportunity to inform women about the effects, about what we know, about what we do not know about drinking in pregnancy, and offer support. So unless we have that time and unless we have that that protocol, which is standardized across the country, we will not be able to, for example, lengthen the duration of the booking appointment, make sure that everybody's informed in exactly the same way, make sure that women understand about the risks, 
make sure that we record what levels of um, alcohol are used in the population to be used in an anonymized way, to be used to relate to outcomes in the population, which doesn't mean to say they will be used uh, um, against them. So confidentiality and, uh, and sensitive information are really key and part of, of this process. I think it might surprise people how little information pregnant women are given about alcohol because we all know everyone knows that too much alcohol during pregnancy is bad for you but I was surprised speaking to my midwife that we didn't really mention alcohol and maybe it was because I said that right at the beginning that I didn't drink but to be honest I can't even remember if she asked me and given I research alcohol I think I probably would remember if you know what I mean so I, I think perhaps the sort of pushback was that people just assumed that surely heavy levels of alcohol must already be recorded and not realising that actually maybe they're not. Yeah, no, they aren't. Yeah, and, and I think there, there is a big, big difference between heavy levels of alcohol consumption and women who perhaps already have identified alcohol problems and the services that those women will be getting and the way in which we help those women through their pregnancy compared with this idea of the lower levels, which as yet there is no certainty about this idea of a threshold. We dispute it. And we have no evidence to suggest it. And that's why we we adopt this idea of saying, well, let's just avoid it. The safest option is going to be to say to have no alcohol. But we need to know. We need to be able to understand if women have drunk any alcohol. We need to be able to do it to increase that evidence to get better information. I think it's, it's a little bit like the conversations we were having 10, 50. I've been working in maternal and child health for a long time about 15 years ago when we were talking about domestic violence and how would we have the conversations with women about domestic violence. So domestic violence is something that is clearly terrible. It also unfortunately increases during pregnancy and it can have catastrophic effects. It can also have less than catastrophic effects and I'm not trying to minimize them but again there's a spectrum of potential effects that can happen from domestic violence during pregnancy and nobody talked about it. It wasn't part of what a midwife was supposed to be talking to their women about. And we changed that narrative and it happened slowly. But now it is absolutely accepted that we ask women about potential domestic violence situations, that we record that information confidentially, usually in a very clever way in notes so that it can't be found out by the partners. And so that we can then follow up those women during their pregnancy in a slightly different way, potentially, and we can look for those early signs of potential harm caused to the child and do something about it. It's not just for fun. It's not for, oh, yeah, like we fancy collecting a piece of information for no reason. There's a good justification behind the way that we do it. But the narrative around domestic violence changed dramatically. It was an absolute no-go area 20 years ago, and it is absolutely 100% accepted now. And I think we're just at the starting point of those conversations with alcohol. I hope and I believe that in 20 years time, this won't be a conversation that needs to be happening in this way. It will be part of standard care. It'll be something that we have better information on. We're able to support women with their choices with the best evidence. That's really interesting about domestic violence because it's something that I've noticed that every time I see my midwife, if I'm by myself, that will be a question. And for the 
majority of people, it's a question that takes 10 seconds. You ask it, the answer is no, and you move on. Just in the same way that every time I see my midwife, she asks about my mental health. It's kind of like one of those questions of just ensuring that you as an individual are okay. And it's obvious that you can see that sort of the severe risks of things like domestic violence, but the sort of more minor risks might be an increased level of cortisol, for example, if you're more stressed and that kind of thing that can cause you and the baby problems. There's something else I wanted to talk about briefly. And this is when we were making some notes before we started recording, we talked about the two body issue. And I think it's a really interesting um, concept here that when we're thinking about who is at risk here, we think, well, the child is at risk because the child is the one that will develop fetal alcohol spectrum disorder potentially. But that's not, the child doesn't exist in a vacuum. So do you want to talk a bit about what we sort of mean by the two, the two body issue? Yeah, I usually just uh, summarise that as saying that maternal health is child health and child health is maternal health. And that really means that the mother cannot make decisions that are only going to impact on herself, but all of her decisions, for better or for worse, are going to impact the child. But it also means that if we try to um, just focus on the child on their own and we forget that the child is going to be growing up healthily within a family. So so if there's anything wrong with so if, if the mother chooses to drink, for example, and chooses to drink without limitations, um, that might have quite a heavy effect on the child and the child might develop fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which might mean that they will need a substantially increased level of support throughout their life. So this is a lifelong condition. Let's not forget that. And it's going to be very, very different to be a mother to a child with and a, grown, and, and an ad, and a young adult with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It's a it can be experienced as a source of stress. It will be, um, it will be something that will affect mothers in terms of the time that they need to dedicate to their children. And so what they perceive as their body, their choice, their right during pregnancy could come back to affect them for the rest of their life. Because what happens to that child is also going to affect their health and their, their mental and physical health for the foreseeable future. And I really do not see how this fails to be entering the debate as to here is my body and here is me and, and I end and the child begins. Because if anything happens to the child and you're still going to be their mother, it's going to affect the whole family. Yeah. And, and it's not just the parent child, uh, you know, so it's not just the mother child. because the, There may be another parent that is heavily involved. There may be other children. There are consequences it's not it's not about scaremongering it is about the best information we can give people like i know i sound like a broken record but that that really is what we're trying to do um and louise is absolutely right you know your your personal self doesn't exist only for that nine months you're going to be around for a lot long after that hopefully god willing and as will your child and your relationship with them and the wider family and the support network and the community that you're with I think it's fair to say that the overwhelming majority of women want the best for their babies. And so we're, we're also not trying to say that people are deliberately trying to harm their children by drinking, not at all. But if we want the best for our children, we need the best information to be able to set them up for that right from the outset. 
Well, maybe this is a good time to start thinking about wrapping this episode up. And I would quite like to end on something sort of positive and empowering. So what should we as researchers or should the NHS or who, what should be, what should be done? Who should be doing it? And how can we do it all better? Because the thing that I have noticed being pregnant is that you're constantly bombarded with well you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this and you should do that and you should do that there's so much sort of pregnancy shaming and mum shaming and all of this kind of thing it's it's tough being pregnant because you're you're kind of scrutinized in a way that you like I mean as women we're kind of always scrutinized maybe to a greater or lesser extent but in a completely different way rather than turning alcohol use during pregnancy into another thing that women get sort of chastised for, what should we be doing to empower women to make better informed choices? I, I think it's about offering support. So as, as we mentioned earlier, the, uh, the, the very public Prince Harry support of Meghan Markle, I mean, my husband's no prince, but he also offered to stop drinking during my pregnancy to my many pregnancies to to make sure that it didn't feel like I was going it alone that it wasn't odd Um, and there are different ways of giving that support so we can give support as professionals by providing that information um, in a supportive way and the conversations that you know most health professionals midwives especially will have with women are all about providing that support but we can do it from a societal perspective so changing that narrative about alcohol being the one thing that we have to hold on to our inalienable right to drink alcohol we don't we don't have to we don't have to have it in all occasions simple things i mean i went to a royal college of physicians event some time ago that was about european response to alcohol harms which had a wine reception at the end of it we just need to stop that kind of thing you know we don't need it to be everywhere we just simply don't. And we can make those changes and they end up supporting women to be able to have real choice to choose not to drink. I love that. I absolutely love that, Kate. Um, I really think that listening with compassion um, to pregnant women is really, really important. I think that it can be an incredibly isolating time, especially for first pregnancies or for first babies. Um, so it's a really, really tough time. And as you say, the last thing we want is to feel as a pregnant woman that the whole world is, observe, is watching you and you, are, and you carry the burden of the world on your shoulders and it's all down to you and, and you're guilty and you're responsible. And really remove that individual responsibility and that sense of stress, which incidentally is going to bring women to drink more, to relieve the stress, because that's what we do in other contexts. So, and, and there is this um, debate about uh, whether it's best for the mom, the pregnant woman to be really, really stressed and have high cortisol levels or to maybe attenuate that stress by you know, just taking the edge off by drinking it a bit. Well, neither of them are desirable, if you ask me. It'd be much better to be able to feel that you are enjoying your pregnancy, that you have your uh, right to feel listened to, held compassionately, supported, by everybody around you, starting with your family, your imminent family, uh, your circle of friends, your community, and your healthcare supporters. 
something really great that I found out during my research on alcohol was that when I looked at some Norwegian data, I found that women in Norway were much more successful in reducing the amount they drank during pregnancy or in quitting because most of their partners were reducing or quitting. So in a society which is more egalitarian in nature, which has uh, women and men on a e in equal footing for many different aspects of their life, men take a bit more of a, an active role in the pregnancy. And that has an enormous impact in stress levels, but also drinking. I think that's one of the the great things from the trimester campaign is that it suggests that you choose a buddy for each trimester so you're not asking one person to sacrifice a whole nine months with you but you've got a couple of people three people three trimesters if you go all the way to term obviously um and you buddy up with them for those nine uh for those nine months so periods of three months at a time and so in the first trimester maybe it could be somebody that you are usually going out with in a social situation while you're still going out like a not showing pregnant person maybe you know in the second trimester maybe it can be somebody else who is supporting you whilst you're having that incredible bizarre nesting experience where you want to get enormous amounts of things done and you're a complete weirdo and mad and in the third trimester it can be the person who's there with you being calm and relaxing and hopefully preparing for that life-changing event at the end of it so you know I, I think that's I think that is a really nice campaign that seems to be working really well and we should just we should we should support women that's the over overwhelming message I think that we need to, to get out well that seems, that seems like a brilliant place to wrap it up um Dr Louisa Zuckerlo Dr Kate Fleming thank you so much for your time you're welcome Susie it's been a pleasure thanks Susie anytime And there we go. Thanks again to Kate and Louisa for taking the time to speak to me. Join us next time for the episode with James Nichols from Transform. Make sure you're still subscribed and you'll get it automatically. Thanks so much for listening and sticking with the podcast, even while I've been uh, busy doing other things for a little bit. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.